Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another cloudy day in a still rather deserted city of Westminster in these current times of COVID-19, as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Chaloner and I'm joined on today's programme by Jez Bond. Jez is the Artistic Director at Park Theatre in North London. Jez, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for joining us on the programme today. Thank you very much for having me. It's a real pleasure, Jez. Now, the purpose of this discussion is to really understand your take on leadership. And if we just look at that word leader in isolation first and foremost, what does that word actually mean to you and how does it resonate? Well, I suppose for me, a leader is about someone who has a vision and effectively communicates that vision to their team. And in many ways, what I do on a daily basis, or rather pre-lockdown, what I did on a daily basis, um, working as a leader in theatre, um, is very, very similar, um, uh, the parallels between being a CEO and, and running a theatre building and a, a theatre charity, um, very, very similar to uh, actually what I do as a director in, in a rehearsal room where essentially you have a clear vision for your production of, say, Hamlet. And there's thousands of productions of Hamlet that have been on. I mean, I personally have seen about 25 different productions, and everyone is just that, so very, very different. And when you're a director, you take it, you take a play, and you communicate your vision, and you communicate it to the actors, and you work with them to develop the best roles are the best performances that they can do. So, so it's about getting the best out of them and creating an environment in which they can express themselves. They're not afraid. They can be open. They can be honest. They can dare to take risks. Uh, and it's about communicating that vision also to all of your creative team, from the lighting designer to the set designer to the stage management. Um, so th- there's a lot of parallels with working in a rehearsal room and communicating that vision to, to, to uh, working as a CEO of a company. Mm, I think that's absolutely right. I think there's so much you can transfer um, over into the uh, the business world from those uh, sorts of skills. Exactly. And you mentioned a lot of important points as well. The need to empower other individuals with confidence to have their voices heard, but also take on their own forms of leadership and be independent because that is what's going to ultimately help people develop, isn't it? Being willing to try things uh, for themselves, maybe suffer one or two setbacks, make a mistake or two, and then just learn from that experience and develop from it. Oh, I mean, I agree wholeheartedly. Um, In fact, I have a little bugbear about, um, well, I think it's partly, it occurs partly in the industry as as a theatre industry. It also, however, occurs partly in the country as we are an island and there's a sense of a kind of insular mentality. And the bugbear is this, that I do believe, as you've just said, that people learn by making mistakes and they learn by doing and by trial and error. And I was given a lot of opportunities when I was young to do just that. And it's been amazing. And I've been really keen to give that back to other people. But there is a sense sometimes of people not wanting to let those opportunities happen, not wanting people to take those risks and make those mistakes 
maybe maybe because of fear, maybe because of control. Mm. And I know as a director, I've been in a rehearsal room before where um, a, a producer has said to me, um, can you take an assistant director? And I said, yeah, absolutely. And they said, oh, don't, don't worry. It's just going to be someone who's going to be quiet and sit in the corner. And I'm thinking, hold on, no, no, that's fine. I actually want someone who's not going to be quiet and sit in the corner. I want someone who's going to sit next to me, who's going to be able to command the room with me, talk to me, talk to the other actors, who's going to have an opinion. And what's the worst that can happen? They, they have an opinion that's really good. They think of an idea that you hadn't thought of. Well, that's good. You, you own that. You're the director. You brought that person in. You can own that as well. You don't have to be right 100% of the time. You don't have to be there every moment with the answers. You have to simply be the one who enables. You have to be the enabler and the person who's leading that pathway towards your vision. That is so, so important, Jez. I think that's completely right. Um, and also the importance of communication, um, as you've mentioned on a couple of times, is absolutely massive, especially in the here and now where we're all essentially working from a distance bar, those who are going um, in on site. And even then, they're still working from a distance technically. So leadership from yeah. afar has been incredibly important and keeping the communication channels open with technology or any other means, that's an important part of that. But that comes with its own pressures, doesn't it? Because when there's so much uncertainty, leaders are being looked to to provide some sort of reassurance. And that can be difficult when there's a lot of uncertainty there about the future and maybe sort of a lack of clarity and a lack of information. Oh, I mean, absolutely. It's um, been the hardest thing for us throughout this whole process is not having the crystal ball, um, not knowing what is going to happen, um, not knowing what our contingency planning needs to be. Um, if at any point someone turned around and said, okay, you will open on such and such a date, it doesn't really matter whether that date would be a week from now or a year from now. It would give us a solid fixed point to work towards. Without that, as you say, you're sort of lost in sea a little bit. And the job of a leader is to go, okay, we are out at sea, but we're not lost. We're, we're drifting here, but there is, there is a plan. It's slightly uh, tricky because it is above our heads as well, because there is now you know, an unprecedented time where we're waiting on government policy and there's a whole, a whole country at stake. Um, so I don't have all the answers, but what I can say is these are the steps we're taking. These are the contingencies we're putting in place. We don't know when we're going to open. We're imagining three different scenarios, and we've planned for, yes, opening next week, opening in six months, opening in a year, for example, and we're keeping you all in touch. And I'm sorry there isn't more information. If you've got anything you'd like to talk to us about, reach out at any time. You know, it's all about keeping those levels of communication open. So even if there is nothing much to say, people know they can pick up the phone and just have a chat. And sometimes, particularly with people's mental health at the moment, and people very vulnerable and very worried about the situation and work and finances and what it means to them, just picking up the phone and being able to have a chat and hear the voice of your line manager or your CEO or whoever it is, um, is, is what's needed just to, to, to enable them to, to get through the next few days. 
There is a renewed focus at the moment, isn't there, on mental health and well-being and also sustainability as well. So there are some real positives that have come out of this um, quite tragic and difficult time. I'm already in that sense. And I think one of those from a business perspective is also going to be resilience and experience from crisis management from the leadership point of view, but also employees as well for knowing that, of course, their leader essentially is kind of putting an arm around them uh, metaphorically. Um, They're also being encouraged to go above and beyond and in many cases are doing. We've heard some incredible stories of people really going out of their comfort zones to keep things ticking over there are going to be some real positives to come out of this aren't there in terms of bringing us closer together and breeding resilience Uh, i think so i think there will be some um that you've talked about i think there's an opportunity for a lot of positives to come from it but i'm always slightly skeptical knowing that um we are as humans creatures of habit habit Mm. is such a strong force um, I worry in many respects that as things get eased, people start to return to to their former ways. I hope we can take things from this and, as you say, come out with at least the good points remembered. Um, and I think certainly think things like mental health, um, it, very important. Uh, things like being able to just touch in with your employers and keeping those uh, so your employees keeping those um, levels and channels of communication open more, um, the different ways of working quite possibly. I mean, I know there are there are many examples of jobs where actually you do have to or you would benefit from getting 12 people from different countries in a room together because you are creating something, debating something, developing something as a team that needs that kind of human or verbal interaction where you are in the same room. There are other examples of situations where perhaps you don't need to fly out across the continent to pitch for one specific piece of work, but you could do that on Zoom. So hopefully we will find the way that we think it works for us moving forward that, that takes into account what we've learned. I would agree with that. I think um, it's going to be very interesting to see how we uh, we move forward. And before we sort of focus a little more on the uh, the future, Jez, if we just sort of take a little bit of a step back for a moment. And of course, we've said the response from many people, frontline workers um, and others alike during this time has been incredibly inspiring. Um, inspiration, of course, being a very important part of being a leader. But who have been some of the biggest inspirations for you and maybe some of the biggest influences as you've gone through your career? And if there's no people that stick out, that also goes for experiences as well yeah um i suppose the well going back to what i said earlier one of the one of the most important um things that has happened to me over over my young adulthood um was the opportunity the opportunity to make mistakes the opportunity to learn by doing and i think i've learned a lot more by by that than i would have ever got from uh, from a book or from a course. I mean, really interestingly, I, I did drama um, BA honours at uh, university, and I was sort of thinking, oh, should I do this module in directing? I knew I wanted to be a director, um, and, and I felt I, I, I would do the do the drama degree to get an all round education on on theatre, on, on history of drama and uh, theory of drama, which which is what it does and is really really useful. And I thought, oh, maybe I'll take this module in directing. And ironically, the module in directing I took was actually, for me, the least useful of the whole three years there. 
the, the attempt to kind of teach someone how, how to direct. But what I got from it as a director was all the other modules, all the, all the history, all the theory, all the times where you could just put on a show, uh, book a space in the university and do a reading, do a workshop. So do, do, do has been my motto, I suppose, uh, and, and what I'm really keen to give back to, to, to young people coming up. Um, in terms of inspirational figures, um, there's been a couple of uh, directors whose work I have really admired, um, uh, from people like uh, Sam Mendes to um, Stephen Daldry, uh, who are, I used to see a lot of their plays um, in town. Um, I have my own personal uh, inspiration in my father, um, who was not, not a theatre man himself, very much a businessman, but um, maintained a huge passion for theatre all his life. Um, and uh, and he was a man of incredible strength and determination and passion and motivation. And to see his drive in a business sense uh, and how hard he worked and grafted uh, was an absolute inspiration and will always be to me. Mm. Find some fantastic examples um, of leadership uh, there, Jez, for sure. And now shifting focus to the future before we do wrap things up on the uh, the programme today. As we move through this current COVID-19 situation, uh, what do you hope to achieve with the uh, the Park Theatre? And as we really not just get through this pandemic, but also look to the long term future when we begin to cl- steer clear of this? Well, we're in a really interesting sector where the concept of social distancing theatre is is one that can't really exist. Um, financially, if we examine the, the financial argument, um, social distancing theatre would mean taking out probably three out of four seats in an auditorium. Um, as you may well know, and I'm sure your listeners will, um, the, the mechanics of theatre is such that the break-even point from anywhere from Park Theatre to a larger 1,000-seat West End venue tends to be between 60 and 70% bum-on-seat capacity. Therefore, even if you just take out every one in two seats, uh, you can't possibly break even financially. So the financial argument um, falls flat straight away in in terms of socially distancing theatre. And then artistically, really, really tough as well because you then look to, okay, well, what are some other ways we can engage with audiences? What can we do that maintains social distance, the sort of lockdown theatre measures? We can release things that we've done as archive recordings. We can do actors um, on Zoom, doing Zoom readings or performances, films in their houses or things like that. But any time, all you end up with is some sort of odd hybrid with film and TV. What you've lost in that is the very essence of theatre, which is all about sitting in the same room, in that darkness, breathing the same air as those actors, enjoying that magical immediacy of the moment that is gone the next minute. And that is theatre. That's what we're passionate about. And what I'm keen to do is to ensure that at some stage we can come back to that. And I think we will need that more than ever, that communal experience of drama. Um, So over the next few months, we are simply trying to 
build more and more financial resilience to mitigate against this awful time. Um, we've currently raised close to half a million um, and furloughed most of our staff. It's still not enough. Um, articles have come out recently from um, yeah, people like Sonia Friedman and James Graham, and you know, lots of people have, have spoken about the fact that theatre, including the National, the Royal Opera House, all of these are in absolute jeopardy, uh, and, and that most likely, if there isn't further government bailout, 75% of arts establishments will close and potentially not reopen again by the end of the year. So our focus really is on the finances. Um, and then in terms of what the new normal will look like, I suppose the question is going to be, what will the appetite be? And there's a school of thought that says, well, people have been locked down for so long and been um, devoid of, of that kind of experience that I described, that, that live interaction that they will crave it. Another school of thought says, well, that's true, but people may also be very cautious about suddenly being sitting uh, together in a room with another 200 people, um, particularly an older community who are quite uh, um, uh, quite a sort of theatre-going community as well, um, and that people may have felt the sort of pinch of finances as well, so perhaps those three theatre trips a year turn to two or turn to just one. And what will that do for our bums on seats um, uh, numbers? So, um, it, it, again, we don't have the crystal ball. It's very hard to say. But fundraising is, is the key to try and mitigate against this uh, and, and to, to ensure that we can come back strong. And, of course, come back strong not just doing uh, theatre, but doing all that we do in the community. So we have um, a, a large community outreach program we work with uh, three different age groups of young people. We work with older members of the community suffering from isolation. We also um, have a couple of dementia groups for people with dementia and their carers. Some of those, I have to say, are, are um, going on online, which is great news. We've been able to continue that because we really felt we didn't want to suddenly just ditch all of those programs, um, uh, particularly because a lot of the participants are, are vulnerable people who could really benefit from it and really need that kind of weekly touch in. Um, so I guess that's kind of where, a little bit about where we're going. Um, but as we've said, it is slightly vague. Um, and so it, so it must be right now. It is completely uncertain as to uh, the direction that we are heading in. And um, of course, as you've said, um, the uh, the theatre industry is going to need a great deal of support to uh, make it through uh, these challenging times. And let's hope that that is forthcoming. And I think if we do start to see some real positive steps um, toward that in the uh, the next few months, it will be fantastic, Jess, to perhaps have you uh, back on the, uh, the programme to catch up on how things are getting on. And maybe we can also talk about the new normal and how it's developing as we begin to understand exactly what that is going to look like. Well, I would be delighted. So just let me know. Thank you very much. It's been a wonderful experience I'm having you on the air with us uh, today, Jez, to have share your views and with the uh, the listeners for sure. And I can't thank you enough, of course, for taking the time to uh, do just that. It's been a thoroughly insightful experience for myself as well. And do please take care and stay safe with everything still going on, because we're certainly not out of the woods with this yet. Absolute pleasure. And thank you very much. All the best to you too.
That was Jez Bond speaking, the artistic director at Park Theatre. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with Lord David Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is an active member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State, and also the chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. He rose to prominence, achieving all of those things, despite being blind from birth. He held a number of senior positions in the Cabinet of Tony Blair, as well as Education Secretary and served as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew enjoyed speaking with Lord Blunkett, and that is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected. Mm-hmm. In the circumstances, there are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can, uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery. Whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and productivity and, and the production of goods, and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system, we're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. 
Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons, Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think Out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like. Uh, But also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in... uh, 
the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the the UK and um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest uh, history, and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear right. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top, and that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice, uh, the health secretary often chairs corporate meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate 
the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm-hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Donald Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated, Mm -hmm. scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real, on the back of that. It was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And, of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would. people criticise the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown, these kind of things you you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations? that we don't have a vaccine for, mm-hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or 
for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety, we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now 
about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public, who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently, let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. And unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are uh, the changes in the, uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, 
had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and um, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition, more importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Sakir is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, There has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, What's your response uh, to that report, and what does Sakir need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission Uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one key key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge 
is to convince skeptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learnt from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, Do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, thank you for coming on the the program. It's been an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage of confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.